This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, December 23rd, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know... You know Dasher. You know. I've been listening to Christmas carols like this one. You know it. And a lyric struck me as odd. Here, come along with me on a magic sleigh ride. You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and The line after this one. Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitz. It's this part. But do you recall? And this part. The most famous reindeer of all. Wait a minute. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer That's a paradox Had a very shiny nose If he's famous And if you ever saw it Then we know him You would even say it glows First they mention All of the other reindeer Who we're said to know Used to laugh and call him names Then they wonder if They never let poor Rudolph We recall a more famous one Join in any reindeer game I'm bewildered In one foggy Christmas Eve Santa came to say Tautological Rudolph with your nose so bright Famously bright Won't you guide my sleigh tonight Then how the reindeer loved it But also envy As they shouted out with glee And some passive aggression Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer Gloriously so You'll go down in history Like Jesus On the show today Can we be sure what Santa saw that foggy Christmas Eve? It was foggy, and he does wear spectacles, doesn't he? We'll talk with Maria Konnikova about the vagaries of eyewitness testimony. And in the spiel, a Christmas miracle. Oklahoma can keep executing people. But first, it's not Easter Island. It's not Ascension Island. And it's also not Christmas Island. I bet you thought I was going to say Christmas Island. Well, I won't. But it is the island of Cuba, a very newsworthy island indeed. In U.S. and Cuba relations, this now, this is the point from which the future diverges. For 50 years, we've been stuck in this embargo. American policy has been intractable. Cuban policy, and indeed society, is a bit frozen in time. Just look at those 1955 Chevys that have been rehabbed for decades over and over again on that island. Now that the Obama administration has announced plans to normalize relations with Cuba, there are so many ways that things can go. Emily Parker is here. She's reported for the New York Times, for the Wall Street Journal, Her book is Now I Know Who My Comrades Are. It's about the internet in the communist, former communist world, specifically Russia, China, and Cuba. Hello, Emily. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So do you think U.S. policy towards Cuba will be, in a few years, once uh, once the shock of this, we get used to it, like U.S. policy towards Bolivia, like U.S. policy towards Venezuela, left-leaning countries in this hemisphere. Are those good examples to look at? It's going to depend a lot on how the Cuban government is going to behave. And I think we don't really have a clear sense of that because on the one hand, you have the Cuban government talking about modernization and reform and better relations with the U.S. But on the other hand, it has been known to be a pretty repressive government. And so I think we're going to have to see how they take this forward. Now, when we say the, the Cuban government, 
I think most people just think, well, one of two Castros. Mm. But beyond that, are there others in place who would carry on the torch, if you will? Or is, is it kind of a cult of personality there? One thing that I think is really interesting about Cuba and that I noticed in my time there is that There is a widespread sense of paranoia and of fear, and it's not exactly clear even what people are afraid of. Cuba has a very long tradition of citizen informers, and so you have this sense in Cuba that people are nervous and people are afraid, but it's not clear of what. And the social fabric in Cuba is very damaged, and so in that sense, it's not so much about Castro himself. There's like a larger problem in Cuba that I think is going to take a while to resolve. What are the Cuban people like? I mean, Americans often say people yearn for freedom. I don't know. It's sort of a story we tell ourselves, but that could take so many different Mm, forms, right? Look at Russia. They were a little open to democracy. Now they still seem to back their strongman. What insights do we have as to what the will of the Cuban people is? I think Cubans want better lives. I mean, I think it's just very simple. I mean, the, the main thing that anybody will notice going to Cuba is that people are not happy about the economic situation there. People do not think that they make enough money. People want more access to the internet. You know, the internet in Cuba is prohibitively expensive. You know, the people in Cuba generally don't have access to the internet at home. So if they want to go online, they have to go to a hotel. That can cost in the range of $8 an hour, which is the third of a Cuban's monthly salary. And I met people in Cuba who studied law, who wanted to be lawyers, who wanted to be judges, and they still felt they were not making enough money to support their families. So what I heard a lot in Cuba was not, you know, people talking about these abstract concepts of liberty and democracy. People were talking about wages and they were talking about things they wanted to buy. What about freedom of the press? Are they going to be able to ramp up? Will the truth somehow filter down to Cuban <laughs> well, society? Well, this, this is the million-dollar question. So Cuba has astonishingly low internet penetration. It doesn't really make sense why internet penetration there is so low. It depends on who you ask. Some people say 5%. Other people say 25%. It's low. Now people are saying, well, okay, so this is going to pave the way for greater internet access. But internet access is not the same thing as internet freedom. Yeah, you, know, you look, at China, look at China, 600 yeah. million people you have internet access, and they're not exactly enjoying internet freedom. So, I mean, Cuba, my guess is that to the extent possible, they will try to follow the Chinese model of giving people more access to things that they want, but also trying to retain control. And is there a guide, a country whose experiences it might parallel or any other? This is how we human beings try Mm. to order things. We try to think of analogies. Are there any good ones out there? Cuba is in such a different class. I mean, again, it's impossible to totally ignore the China comparison. Unfortunately, the China comparison for a lot of people is probably not a very promising one. Because when you look at China, people thought, okay, with economic freedom comes political freedom. That's inevitable. And China has really defied that paradigm in saying like, yes, you know, we have an economic boom and people really enjoy economic freedoms to a certain degree. But political freedom is a totally different story. I would guess that countries like Cuba are looking at China and thinking like, wouldn't it be cool if we could do that? Whether or not they'll succeed. I mean, China started that model very early and they, you know, they've done pretty well at it. Oh, China also had double digit economic growth for years right. and years and years. I don't know if that's possible with Cuba. You could argue that maybe it is. They've been locked down for so long. You could argue that it's entirely different and it doesn't have a really competent government mm-hmm. who's pushing it like China was. And like, again, I mean, I think there's just other factors. You know, it's been very easy to say, 
the reason Q- the Cuban economy isn't isn't doing well or the reason Cuban Cuba is in this situation is because of the United States. Yeah. And the United States is certainly a big part of the problem, but I'm not convinced it's the entire problem, you know? So this is going to really kind of like call Cuba's bluff, right? I mean, if you if the US is going to normalize relations, if the US is finally going to kind of do the right thing here, what will actually change in Cuba? I think it will also reveal that there's a lot of problems there that didn't have to do with the US at all. Emily Parker is author of Now I Know Who My Comrades Are, Voices from the Internet Underground. Thank you, Emily. Thank you so much. Sometimes on this show, we talk about science, we talk about studies. And you know, studies are always a little abstract, maybe done in a lab with a guy in a lab coat. Lab coats make things abstract. But what about when you can see it, when you can see it with your own eyes? Well, that's what we're going to talk today about with Maria Konnikova, who is a science writer and a scientist in her own right. She writes for The New Yorker, and she joins us every so often to play Is That Bullshit about stories involving social science and all science. Hello, Maria. Hello, Mike. So what we want to talk about today, I guess because there was this uh, podcast that some people have listened to, but also life, real life, people in prison, eyewitness testimony. I think we're beginning to rethink this, but what do we know about this? How reliable is eyewitness testimony? We know that eyewitness testimony is the single least reliable type of testimony. And yet, for juries, it's the single most persuasive. Hmm. So there's a complete disconnect between how much we can trust it and how much people want to trust it. Okay, let's take them both. We'll get to why it's not that reliable. But why do people, why do you suppose people think it's reliable? Because as people, we've all witnessed things with our eyes. It's that we always believe it. I think it's because we all want to think that our memories are good. That's first of all. So I want to say, you know, if I were the one who witnessed this accident, I know I would have gotten the details right. So if this person did it, then that person also got it right. But then there's also the power, I think, of the story that you have a human being who you can relate to as opposed to this cold, hard data where you're just getting a, a bunch of facts. And that in and of itself makes it much more persuasive. Yeah, people are really compelled by people. And the most compelling thing is say, I saw it. Here's what I saw. Here's a story. People love story. Here's a story I'm telling you, and it's based on something I saw. Very hard to yeah. argue with that. And one of actually the most persuasive tactics you can use is to have a personal anecdote because it's much more difficult to argue with. So it seems to me that the problem with eyewitness testimony could be the apprehension, actually seeing it, maybe things aren't seen correctly, could be the retrieval of it, or it could be something that goes on in between. I don't know. Have they studied all of these things? They have. There's a psychologist whose name is Elizabeth Loftus, who's been studying this for decades, and she's been trying to tell people, hey, this is really, really bad for years and years, and no one's listening. She has this really famous study about what we can do to change a memory. And she has people watch a short video of a car driving past a barn and then there's an accident. Um, And depending on how she asks the question, during the accident, did the car, you know, hit the other car or the car smashed into the other car, people either do or don't remember seeing broken glass. So just by one word when she says smash, it's suddenly you remember glass being broken, even though glass was never broken. And this is just one really, really simple study. And it's so famous because it happens right away. It's not like she waited several days to ask about 
what happened during the accident. We think we see everything, but we're really, this is what you were getting at with encoding, it's very malleable. And a lot of times when we ask eyewitnesses to testify, it's something that's also very kind of emotionally jarring, something that, you know, they've thought about a lot. And the other thing about memory is every time we retrieve a memory, we put it back slightly differently. It's this ironic effect that the more often you recall something, the less accurately you're going to recall it. Because every single time you're restoring the way that you remembered it and not the way that it actually happened. I seem to recall having read about studies where people manipulated photos and that actually convinced people that the manipulated thing happened. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And you can also, um, Loftus also has these implanted memory study. One of her most famous ones is the Lost in the Mall study, Mm -hmm. where she convinces, she asks people about a detail of their childhood when their parents lost them in the mall. And by the way, this never actually happened because she's previously talked to all the parents. And suddenly they have these vivid memories of being lost in the mall as a child. And they tell them with all this emotion that, yeah, I remember feeling so scared and everyone was so big and I didn't know where to go. They've created this whole reality. The funny thing is, even when she says, hey, guys, gotcha, this was a study to show how unreliable our memory is, they don't believe her quite often. They say, no, no, I remember this. It definitely happened. Maybe my parents don't remember losing me in the mall, but I remember being lost. I actually was once lost in the mall in a TSS, which is like the kind of semi-mall. And they found me in the record department, and I held up a record. That's the story. I'm sticking to it. I don't remember it, but I was told it so many times. Now... You know, one of the things that's compelling about eyewitness testimony is not that the witness will say, yeah, well, I think that's what it happens. People say it with conviction. So is there a correlation between accuracy and conviction? Will just a certain kind of person always say, I think I remember it, but a certain other kind of person will always say, this definitely happened? So unfortunately, no. There is a correlation between accuracy and conviction in the sense that the more you know something for real, the more confident you are. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there's also a correlation where if you don't know anything at all, you're also very confident. (laughs) So there's a gray area in the middle where you're less confident. But the two extremes, you have equally strong confidence. And sometimes you're dead wrong and sometimes you're really on point. The problem is we have no way of distinguishing which situation we're in. What are some other ways that memories consistently skew? Is it based on the first suggestion that, you know, the police might ask you? Is it based on things that relate to a television show Mm -hmm. you saw, your own experience? What are are the patterns of how memory tricks us? I think both of the things that you mentioned are absolutely right, which is we're very impressionable early on in that period when our memory is still being consolidated. That's when it's most fungible and that's when it's most open to different suggestions. So there's another study on actual police lineups, which is a lot of times exactly what eyewitness testimony is. And we learn that showing people pictures right away can influence their later recall. They can then end up incorrectly identifying someone because it's one of the first pictures they saw. So how should, I mean, the courts of law don't admit lie detector tests, right? There's some statistical validity to lie detectors, but I guess they decide it's not good enough to admit in a court of law. 
can we do a similar test with eyewitnesses or how should eyewitness testimony be introduced? Or, you know, right now a defense attorney will say not all eyewitness testimony is accurate. They'll say that. I don't know if they will present studies. Like, what's the best way to use eyewitness testimony in courts of law? That's a really important and difficult question because when you do something like, say, not all testimony is accurate, please please keep that in mind. It doesn't work. If you say something like if you say Maria is a member of the mafia and then someone says later on, oh, that was actually not true. Please strike that from the record and from your memory. You're going to think I'm a worse person when I ask you about the type of person I am. I'm a little scared of you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's a very basically the moment it's out there. It's already made an impression. And sometimes we even do the opposite. So if you say disregard this, you're going to believe it even more. You'll say, oh, you don't want me to. Mm -hmm. If I were thinking through this, I would probably not admit the majority of eyewitness testimony. Well, it would just seem to me if you have maybe a couple people seeing the same thing, if you could keep them corralled from each other, maybe you could use that. It would seem like Without eyewitness testimony, a lot of guilty people will just skate. No, of course. You you can't eliminate all eyewitness testimony. You raise a very important point, I think. If you can get multiple people independently corroborating the same thing, then your confidence goes up. Then again, if the lead investigator was saying smashed instead of car had an accident every time, maybe they'll all see broken glass. Absolutely. And we know that lawyers do that all the time. I mean, they, they're they trying to sway you. They want you to see the case one way or the other. And I can bet that the best lawyers out there, even if they don't know anything about this testimony, then they instinctively still know that those types of tactics work. Eyewitness testimony is powerful. Is that bullshit or is that not bullshit? That's not bullshit. It's incredibly powerful. Eyewitness testimony should usually be believed, bullshit or not. That is bullshit. Hmm. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Maria Konnikova writes about science and is a member of the mafia. Thank you very much, Maria. (laughs) Thank you, Mike. (laughs) I know where you live. I live near that mall where all the kids get lost. And now the spiel. Hark, the herald angels weep. So the holiday season is upon us. And this year, this is the way to do the holiday season. Hanukkah ends tonight. Then Christmas Eve is tomorrow. Christmas Eve, of course, not a real holiday, but it is the penumbra of a holiday. I love the penumbras. But let's not get distracted. There are serious political issues, serious political items in the news, serious as a heart attack, which is what it looked like killed Clayton Lockett after Oklahoma repeatedly botched his lethal injection. Oklahoma prison officials called off the execution. Then he died. It was ruled a heart attack at the time. It turned out, an autopsy says, that drugs actually wound up working after many, many, many minutes. Oklahoma hasn't executed anyone since then, but they really wanted to. They really wanted to, and now a federal judge has said, go ahead, get back to your a-killing. Arizona, too, the last guy they tried to execute, gasped and snored for two hours before the drugs worked. You know, Arizona, Oklahoma, you just got to admire their can-die spirit, their never-don't-say-die attitude. And the federal judge who injected some horse sense into the proceedings, in addition to injecting five times the amount of the sedative, midozolam, as had been used to kill the last two guys, who proved less than convenient to kill. In other grim news, Michael Grimm, congressman from Staten Island, 
pled guilty to, no, not one of the 20 counts of fraud and misconduct tied to a New York restaurant he owns. No, not the violations of campaign law. That was a separate tax charge. No, it was just another kind of fraud. Let's remember what Michael Grimm said when he ran for his seat last November. Certainly. If I was not able to serve, then of course I would step aside and it would be a special election. Will he toss that pledge away like he once threatened to toss a TV reporter off the balcony of the Capitol Rotunda? There is no requirement that a felony conviction gets you bounced from Congress. He might be instructed not to vote, but there's actually no constitutional rule stopping him from voting. So again, like Oklahoma, like Arizona, here's a hero. I mean, voting is down in this country, but Michael Grimm will insist on voting. Maybe, who knows, he might resign. But maybe he'll want to show America and his Staten Island constituents who handily reelected him despite the litany of charges that you can't keep a good man down or even a corrupt man or even a felonious former FBI agent who was profiled in The New Yorker as orchestrating an impromptu FBI raid on a nightclub after confronting a girlfriend's estranged husband there. He denied threatening to kill anyone that night because, here's what he told The New Yorker, a guy with a gun who knows how to use it doesn't need to say anything. Except maybe, I plead guilty, Your Honor. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi has been described by eyewitnesses as having no distinguishing marks except a tattoo that reads Dokken. Just in turn, Claire Tennisketter was spotted by a neighbor on the 800 block of Waveland Avenue acting suspicious. Quote, I just can't describe it. It was something that seemed off about her. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, marks his territory through urinating, defecating, and by scratching, rubbing, and biting trees. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, has a loping gait and is said to favor members-only jackets and parachute pants. Get our daily email at slate.com slash just email. We are on Yo! Get that app and then subscribe to podcast. Email us at the gist at slate.com. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash slate gist. There have been few confirmed sightings of the gist. Since the London incidents, the gist has become persona non grata within revolutionary communities. So be on the lookout for this shadowy, elusive figure characterized by a regal bearing or poor posture with either a lantern jaw or a weak chin. He has been described as baby-faced, bearded, or more pockmarked than Edward James Almos. I know it sounds daunting, but to aid in your quest, there is this note. He is a poor singer. He could do only one regional accent passably, and he has a penchant for wordplay. Also, I have him in a cage right here at my feet and have been repeatedly poking him with a stick this whole time. Thanks for listening.